Thank you guys so much for joining us this Sunday. It is good to see you. If you would, go ahead and grab a Bible. Uh, turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. You can use an adult Bible or a Jesus Storybook Bible. We're going to talk about one of the most famous stories in all of Scripture. If you didn't bring a Bible, they're always available for you into the, on the way into the worship space. Please feel free to grab that. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. Take that home with you. We want everyone to have a Bible because over the course of this summer, we are making our way through some of the most famous stories in all of Scripture. The stories that if you grew up in or even around church, if you ever went to a week of vacation Bible school, surely at some point you have heard some of these stories. Stories like David and Goliath, Jonah and the great big fish, right? Today we're going to look at uh, Noah and the flood. Last week we kicked off the study with the story of Adam and Eve, but here's what we're going to see. We're not looking at these stories like just like the way we taught them to our kids growing up. Not that there's anything wrong with the way we taught them to our kids, but we are looking deep into these stories because in every one of these stories, we will find Jesus. And so we say that we are looking through these stories, not just like they're fairy tales that were taught to us as kids or fairy tales that we read to our kids, but these were real people who lived a real life, whose real story points to a very real Jesus. And like I said last week, we kicked off the series with the story of Adam and Eve in the very beginning. We saw that Adam and Eve were created by God in the image of God to reflect the glory of God. He put them in a perfect world to enjoy a perfect relationship with him. And it wasn't until like the third page of the Bible that they messed everything up. Things went sideways when they rejected God. Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They rejected him and his goodwill for their life. And things went spiraled out of control very quickly. The firstborn son, Cain, married their second son, Abel, uh, things got worse and worse through the years, and that's where we're going to pick up the story today. So if you're new to, new to this Bible study, Adam and Eve, early in Genesis chapter 1, created in the, in the image of God. Noah, the very next big story, maybe one of the most famous stories in the Bible, it got to this point where everything went sideways, and so God felt like he just needed to start over. Have you ever made such a mess of something that you feel like you just need to start over? Maybe like working on a computer, and I know we have engineers in the room from like Blue Origins and NASA and the Navy and Lockheed and people that are incredibly brilliant. When I have a computer problem, I just restart. And if I can't get to restart, I just pull the plug because then it like forces restart. And I know all the computer people kind of cringe because that's not what you're supposed to do. But sometimes you just make such a big mess of something that you just have to start over. This morning, I got up, I got ready, I came to church, we did the setup, I was doing signs out there, and I was, when I left the house this morning, I was in like mint condition. I mean, as good as it gets for me on my way to church, for church on Sunday, I was so drenched in sweat in between, I had to go home and just start over. Another shower, another, you know, getting ready for church. The story of Noah is the story of God seeming, seemingly starting over. It's one of the most well-known stories in all the Bible, but when we read it, we teach it to our kids. It's not exactly a kid's story, is it? Because this is the story of when sin was so bad on the earth, when we had moved so far from God that God wanted to start over. So if you have your Bibles with you, we're in Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, beginning of the Bible, 6th chapter, and we're going to pick up the story in verse 5. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, it says this. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord, it says, regretted that he made man on the earth, and it grieved God to his heart. 
All right, so last week, we saw the story unravel really quickly. God created Adam and Eve, and he put them in this perfect environment for a perfect relationship with him. And it wasn't until, the, like we said, the third page of the book that Adam and Eve chose their way instead of God's way, and they sinned. And things just spiraled out of control. As we flip through a few years of human history and a couple different generations, things had gotten so bad, so sideways because of sin, that when the Lord looked upon the earth, all he saw was sin. Wickedness everywhere. Everyone was just doing what they want, when they want, with who they want, with no regard for the God who called them and created them and put them there to care for them. Which, if we think about it, if left to ourselves, isn't that exactly how things go? Like, if we just follow the desires of our heart, aren't things going to go sideways? And I'm not even talking about seriously, though I'm sure we've dealt with the, the serious fallout of sin. Just like, if you just do what you want to do, when you want to do it, with whoever you want to do it, things will go sideways. I saw, I've seen this in my life, in some extent, in the last few weeks, because the last few weeks, my wife, Carissa, has been traveling out of town a lot. Now, for her job, she gets to serve the church on a macro scale. She travels all around the country and invites church leaders to these leadership conferences to talk about the things they're doing to advance the gospel. And so when she's out of town, I no longer have someone at home telling me what I have to do and when I have to do it. Now, I love God, just to clear your mind, I love God way too much to commit some kind of egregious sin. I've got safeguards in place, always trying to honor God with my life. But I will say, often, the things I choose to eat when my wife is out of town are things I wouldn't be caught dead. She wouldn't let me eat when she's home. Like, it's nothing for me and my daughter. She likes to... My, two-and-a-half-year-old daughter likes to watch cooking shows before she goes to bed. So we'll be watching a cooking show, and they'll be cooking a big steak. And I was like, man, that looks really good. And I put her to bed at 8.30 or 9 o'clock, and I think, man, I've got a freezer full of meat, and I've got a grill that's ready to go. And so maybe, like, if I just get the other night a 16-ounce steak at 10 o'clock at night. Now, if Carissa was there, she would have said, you're being ridiculous, right? At the same time, while the steak thaws, I usually get online and I order more steak because you never want to run out of, never want to run out of steak. But the idea is, as silly as that sounds, when we're left to do whatever we want well, without anyone to tell us otherwise, to help us stay on track, we will get so far off course. You stay up all night cooking steak and you realize the consequences of the next morning when the alarm goes off in the early hours of the morning, it's time to get up, you're exhausted, you're full, you're sick. But we're left to do whatever we want. We followed our heart. It's so popular in today's culture to say, like, you do you, right? You do you, man. Whatever you want to do, who am I to say what you should do with your life? Follow your heart. And that sounds so good. But where does it lead us? Like, just like, no, like, says, uh, if you follow your heart, our heart is evil. And it deceives us. And it, it makes us want to do things that we know aren't, aren't good for us. Have you ever followed your heart only to find out things didn't go well? Have you ever followed your heart and find out that it failed miserably? Some of you have followed your heart into a marriage that your parents and your grandparents and your church community told you, this is not good for you, and it just seems like it's failing miserably. Now, the end of that story is you're already married, right? So if you're going to honor God, you figure it out, and by God's grace, you can put any marriage back together. But you followed your heart into a situation that doesn't seem like it's going well, and now you're trying to invite God into a marriage after the fact to help put the pieces back together. Maybe you followed your heart and you bought something. Maybe you followed your heart and you bought a boat. I've been there. And then the boat is broke and so are you, right? And then it's like, and it seems like, man, I followed my heart. So I had to sell my boat. If it makes us uncomfortable, here's the thing. When we do what feels good, it never leads us where we really want to go. In the days of Noah, people were just doing whatever they want, whenever they wanted, with whoever they wanted, and they weren't getting the results that they thought they wanted. Why? The truth is, it's because sin, which separates us from God, is deceptive at its core. 
Hear what Paul, the author uh, of Romans, the book of Romans, writes in Romans chapter 7, verse 11. He says, For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, it killed me. Paul says, like, man, sin, it, was, it seemed so good at first. In fact, Paul was going to write, like, I thought I was doing things that honored God, but I was getting sideways and, and it deceived me, and my sin ultimately killed me. Jesus would say in John chapter 10, verse 10 through 11, he says, the thief, the enemy, Satan, who we saw last week tempt Adam and Eve to sin for the first time, has been tempting us ever since, he says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. Sin seems so good in the moment, but we've all been where Paul is. And we've all realized that what Jesus says is true, that sin, it deceived us. It sold us a lie that thought, man, God is holding out on us. And if I just do what I want, when I want, with who I want, wherever I want, however I want, that's what I want. And then we get on the other side of it, and like Paul, we say, man, we're deceived. When we look back, hindsight's 2020. we look back, we realize, man, we were deceived. Sin was not good for us. In fact, it separated us from the source of life. It separated us from the one who gave life. Sin separates us from the one who gives us life and gives it abundantly. That is why one of our primary goals this summer is we make our way through this series, as we shared last week, is that as a church, we would stand in awe of God. That as we read these stories, the stories that we grew up with, and as we see how they point to the person and the work of Jesus and God, it just allows us to stand in awe of him that we would want what he wants. If we get out of this series uh, at the end of the summer and accomplish nothing else, our goal is to stand in awe of God and to learn to want what he wants. Now, here's the thing. We don't like to talk about sin. It's inevitable, the part of the story, because sin caused all of the fallout that we're about to see God have to put back together. We don't like to talk about sin because it makes us uncomfortable, but it's way more serious than we even realize. Sin makes us uncomfortable, but it says it, says it grieves God to the heart. One well, of some of the most difficult words to process in all the scriptures that when God saw sin and wickedness and the condition of man's heart so far from a good and gracious heavenly father, so far from the purpose that he created them for, that he regretted that he had made man. His creation had gotten so far off track and it grieved him to the heart. We have a tendency to take sin lightly because when something makes us uncomfortable, we like to make light of it because we think maybe if we make light of the situation, we cannot deal with the consequence of the situation. I saw this a few years ago. I was just getting started in ministry, and I was, I was working alongside learning from a pastor who does like 250 funerals a year. There's no one better to learn from when it comes to funerals than this guy. I mean, it's all he does. But I was watching that. We were at this funeral. We were at the, the funeral of someone... We were at the funeral of someone in our church who died at a young age, a young mom who died prematurely of a drug overdose. And it was a, it was a devastating situation. It was devastating for the family, obviously. It was devastating for the church family. The pastor was counseling the family and trying to greet them. And as people were making their way through, I just kind of stood back and I watched, how do you handle such a difficult situation? And someone was going through the greeting line and, and, uh, and they got to the family and they were so sorry for your loss. And you could tell the person was very uncomfortable. And they had that look. Like you knew they were going to say something that they should not say. And they're shaking the, the, the surviving husband's hand and she says, well, at least she died doing what she loves of a drug overdose, right? Like trying to make a joke. There are times to make jokes and there are times that you do not make jokes. Um, and I say that story because we all get so uncomfortable. We try to make light of a situation and you look across and like in that situation, you saw the family, they were grieved to the heart. That, that comment did not help them at all. 
And just because we make light of sin doesn't mean it grieves God any less. Just because we can write off sin and say, man, I don't, I don't sin, I just make mistakes. No, no, no. It says, God regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to the heart. Why did sin grieve God so much? Why does it grieve God, grieve God so much? Last week we saw that God is not only the creator of the universe, he is the king of his creation. And when we sin against God, we are committing treason against the king. And that breaks God's heart. At the same time, we were made by God in the image of God to reflect the glory of God, which really means we just bear God's image. We reveal, we reflect God's glory to the world he created us. And when we choose to sin, when we choose to disobey God and do what we want instead of what God wants, it distorts, it mars God's image that's being reflected to creation. It's not an accurate reflection. That breaks God's heart. At the same time, maybe more than anything else, is that when we sin, God sees his people settling for less than the abundant life he created us to live for. And that has to break God's heart. I've heard so many parents talk about kids who are prodigal kids and they've walked away from their faith for a season and it just breaks your heart because you see that they're getting so much less out of life, so much less out of relationships, so much less out of their less purpose out of life than if they would have stayed close to God. And so it breaks God's heart. God has to wipe sin out because sin cannot stand in the presence of a holy God. And so we will see good news. But before we get to the good news, we have to start with the difficult things. All right, so that kind of sets the stage. We only have three more chapters to get through. That was two verses. Verse 7. I love the nervous laughter. So the Lord said, verse 7, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I was reading this this week for the first time, and honestly, in quite a while. It's such a familiar story. Often I just read through verses like that. But when I was reading it this week, something really stood out. And I want to I share this with you, because the way this story was sold to me, it was told to me when I was growing up, was that the world had gone sideways. That sin had just run rampant. That everyone was doing the, following the desires of their heart, and everyone was so bad. And then somehow Noah managed to be a good guy. Like, out of nowhere, there's one good person in all the earth, and somehow Noah was good enough for God. And so God saw Noah, and he saw his good works, and he decided, I'm going to start over, and I'm going to start over with Noah. Well, what I realized this week is Noah also was a sinner, right? Like, when I was reading the kids' books growing up, they never talked about Noah's sin, but when we see the story end, we saw Noah had some pretty significant sin issues in his life. But the word here, when it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, it's the word, the Greek, sorry, the Hebrew word hen, which means grace. And what I realized this week is that God chose Noah because Noah, because God was extending his grace to Noah. It wasn't necessarily that Noah was perfect, but that when God looked down, he saw Noah in his favor, bestowed his grace. He bestowed his favor, his grace. And that's good news. Because I don't know about you, like if you grew up thinking, man, if I'm just good enough, you ever grew up with a faith like that? Like we have a church that is full of de-church people. I've been away for church for a while. Maybe you left church because you grew up with a faith that like, if I'm just good enough, then God will give me good things. Or if I'm just good enough, I'll be good enough for God. Or if I just live up to the rules, then God will make my story a story like Noah. But the truth is, Noah was a beneficiary of God's grace. And that we desperately need God's grace to find favor in God's eyes. That none of us are good, the Bible says, no, not even one. 
and that God makes us righteous when we put our faith in him, when we trust him. That's called imputed righteousness. That's when God puts his righteousness on us, when he gives us right standing with God because we put our trust in Jesus. A few thousand years after this, the writer of Hebrews would write a letter to the church at large, and he would clear up some of this for us. Hear what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, about the faith of Noah. It says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. But this he can by sorry by this he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. The verse in Genesis says, "But Noah found favor in the eyes of God." These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. I was kind of thinking through this this week, and I was just reading it and rereading it and praying through it, and I wonder, you know, what we're not told. Did anyone else get a warning of the flood other than Noah? Because like when I read the story growing up, I just thought like God chose Noah because Noah was good, but maybe God saw other people. And maybe God saw, told other people there was impending judgment. And if they would amend their ways and listen to him and put their trust in him, they also could be saved. But Noah and Noah alone put his trust in God. I don't know. I'm speculating. But I wonder if, if other people didn't get, also get an invitation to build an ark to be part of the story. We know that Noah extended an invitation to the people around him, but they turned their back. And that's why in Hebrews chapter 11, it says, by this, by his faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Jesus would say in John chapter 3, or somewhere in there, that uh, whoever puts their faith in Jesus is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. That God's grace extends away, extends it for us a way out of condemnation. That God warned Noah about the flood. He, he extended grace. He invited Noah to walk with him, to listen to him, to walk with him, to have a relationship with him. And Noah trusted God when he weren't, went to work to build the ark. And he put his faith and his obedience in God. And then when Noah put his faith in God, that's when God bestowed upon him the righteousness that comes by faith, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. God warned Noah about the flood. He extended his grace. He invited him to walk with him, to have a relationship. And then when Noah put his faith in God, God bestowed upon him his righteousness. It's the story of the gospel in the Old Testament. Here's one thing we learned, though, is that obedience is important to God. I don't know if we talk about that enough. We, we, we talked about sin, and we talked about God extending his grace, but when we receive God's grace, obedience, keeping in step with God, honoring him with the life we live, and responding to the grace God extends us is important to God. At Eastside, we say that there's a way to experience God. It's a way that we've experienced God. It's a way that you've experienced God. As we look through Scripture, it's the way that everyone experiences God. We see it's that we lean in. We spend time with Jesus. We lean, lean, in, lean in. We listen to him through prayer and fasting and time in his word. And then when we lean in, God speaks. James, the brother of Jesus, would say, if we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. And when God speaks, we take action. And we've got this conviction in our hearts that if, and here at Eastside, that if, if we want God to do what only he could do, like deliver us through a flood, then we have to do what he called us to do. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. So we're in the process of developing a discipleship pathway that we're going to share bits and pieces with you throughout this summer. But if you want to do what God, if you want God to do what only he can do, then we have to do whatever he asks you. And that's where we're trying to lead people. See what God says to Noah in Genesis chapter 6, verse 11. He says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. We're in verse 12. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted 
their way on the earth. We've talked about that. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy the earth. And then God says this to Noah in verse 14. He says, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. This is how you're to make it length of 300 cubits, its breadth 50 cubits, its height 30 cubits. And he goes on for the rest of chapter 6 to give Noah very specific instructions about how he is to build the ark. Uh, he says his ark is supposed to be of gopher wood. Why gopher wood? I don't know. I don't know if I don't know, but God knows, right? And God said, that's what he wants the ark built. I have cubits. Like, it's going to be measured in cubits. I was reading this this week. I wondered if Noah spent the first, you know, year trying to learn how to read a tape measure, right? Is this an eighth of a cubit or a sixteenth of a cubit? What do the little lines mean here? Um, and how many fights he got in with his wife along the way trying to read the tape measure together. Maybe it's why it took him 120 years to build the ark. The next thing is, he's like, he, he had to figure out how to get all the animals into the ark. And we don't know how that happened. And like, Noah got the front door of the ark and just like whistle, and all of a sudden, like the Lion King, they just started coming, or someone hold up a lion club. Or That's not even the most difficult part. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. I've noticed it for the first time this week. Verse 19 says, you're going to bring two of every kind into the ark, and then you have to keep them alive. Like, Noah had to keep alive all of these animals, which I'm a little frustrated with Noah because this was the perfect opportunity. If he was ever going to disobey God, could he not have just forgot to feed the cats for a few months? Like, as the flood was going there, if he just forgot to feed the cats, it would have solved all of us thousands of years of pain and suffering. But God gives Noah all of these instructions, specific instructions on how the ark was to be built. In verse six, chapter 6, verse 22, says this, Now Noah did all that God commanded him. Noah was obedient to God's instruction. Did he understand all of God's instructions? I kind of doubt it. But listen to the story as it goes on. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark. He's built the ark at this point, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all the clean animals, male and his mate, a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, the male, the female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And then in verse 5, God repeats himself, and Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. God repeats himself because Noah did all that God commanded him. It was important to God, and it's important to us, that obedience matters to God. The way we live is evidence of what we really believe. Noah built the ark. Why? Because he believed God. Why do we struggle to honor God? Because we don't believe God. We don't believe that God's way is better than our way. We don't believe that God knows more than we know. We don't believe that God wants good for us. But obedience is evidence that we trust God. That whether we see it or not, especially if we don't see it, obedience shows that we're putting our faith and our trust in God. Imagine what it would have been like for Noah. Again, these aren't just fairy tales that we read as a kid growing up. They're not just fairy tales that we're reading to our kids. This was a real man. He lived 600-something years, 120 of those years. He went to work to build an ark. Now, we're not sure if before Noah it had ever rained on the earth. We know that early on the springs were watering the ground, so we don't know. But we know for a fact there had been no floods. So Noah's building this ark in the middle of nowhere. He's not building it on a trailer as if he's going to haul it to the water someday. He's not building a F-350 that's going to be able to transport it to and from. Noah's building this ark, and the people surely were giving him a hard time the whole time. They were ridiculing him, saying, why are you building, what are you calling this thing, a boat? 
Like, it's never rained. We've never seen a flood. You're not building it near the water, right? Like, why are you building a boat? But Noah stayed after it. I wonder if it was easy on the first year. But can you imagine 10 years in, 20 years in, 60 years in, realizing he's only at the halfway point of the project that God set before him, and yet Noah kept after it. Because Noah believed, whether he saw it or not, that what God called him to was good for him and would glorify God. All of God's commands are for us. Every command of God is for your provision and your protection. Now, I've heard so many people say, and I've probably said it a time or two, like, if God just spoke to me like he spoke to Noah, like, if God just told me, if God showed up and he told me to build a big boat, I'd build a big boat. But if God just spoke to me, I would do that. But the truth is, hasn't God spoken to all of us? And because he knows how forgetful we are, like, he wrote it down. So if we forget it or misinterpret it, we can always go back and we can see things that God says, like, like love your neighbor as yourself. Man, if God would just tell me, right, or husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. Go and make disciples. Be an evangelist. Be salt and light. Tell people about Jesus as you go through life. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. And the commands go on and on and on. God gave us his command. And all of his commands are for our provision and for our protection. And the story goes on. It says, and rain fell upon the earth. We're going to pick up in verse, we'll pick up in verse 17. The flood continued for 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up. Um, Sorry, I'm losing my place. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the mountains uh, under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits, and all the flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and livestock, beasts, all the swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind, everything on the dry land, and whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. It's a flashback to last week when God breathed his life into the nostrils of man. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left, those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Kind of makes me wonder, when we like paint our nurseries for our kids, the Noah theme, why do we not include this picture? Like, you know, there's like the animals on the ark and they look so happy and they're being well-fed and Noah's like on a cruise and then like floating across the water is a bunch of dead people, right? Dead animals, dead cats. Like, why don't we put those pictures if we really want to demonstrate? Because what God is doing is he's pouring out his judgment. He's pouring out his wrath. But as he pours out his wrath to those who put their trust in him and did what he said, what did he do? He carried them safely through on the ark. He He offered them salvation. Genesis chapter 8 is all about the flood and how it subsides and the amount of time that was there. And then the story ends in Genesis chapter 9 verse 7. It says this. It says, after they come out of the ark, everything has been wiped clean. There's a new, new slate. It says, and you, God speaking to Noah, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly upon the earth and multiply in it. Which is really cool because that's exactly what God told Adam and Eve. This is evidence that God is giving his people, his creation, a second chance. So when they put their faith in him, he was extending a second chance to his creation. Then God said to Noah and to all his sons with him, Behold, I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. With every living creature that is with you, the birds of the livestock and every beast of the earth that is with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I will, verse 11, establish my covenant with you. 
that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you and the earth. When I bring the clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and I will remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all the flesh that is on the earth. That's the end of the story from Genesis that we're going to cover. There's more. Um, not Noah's greatest day. But here's, we're going to find Jesus in this story because as Noah and his sons and their daughters come out of, and their, I'm sorry, their wives, his daughter-in-laws, they come out of the ark, God reestablishes a covenant relationship with his people. Now, here's the thing. We think of covenant, it's, it's, we might think of like a contract, Right, like a contract is what you have with your cell phone provider. Like if you do this, I'll do this. If you pay exorbitant amount of fees and taxes, I will provide mediocre coverage for you across the city of Orlando, right? Like that's a contract. You live up to your end of the deal, we'll live up to our end of the deal. A covenant is a promise. It's a promise that God made with his people that no matter what we do, he will make a covenant with his people. It's not that God doesn't expect us to live up because Noah goes out of the ark and the part, another part we don't include in the story, he gets drunk and he parades around or lays there naked before his family, he's a disgrace. And what we see is that God doesn't send another flood. Like he doesn't wipe Noah out because he's made a covenant that he's going to reestablish his people beginning with Noah. Um, so where do we find Jesus in this story? Jesus is all through this story. We see the picture of the gospel laid out. We see sin that has caused us to go sideways, caused the world to go sideways. We see God demonstrate his grace, warn us of impending judgment that is coming for all of those who do life separate from God. We see faith and response and obedience by Noah. We see God provide salvation as he leads Noah through the ark, or leads Noah on the ark through the flood. We see God reestablish his covenant relationship with his people. And then we see God continue to forgive Noah and work through Noah. But I love, more than I can sum it up, I love the way the Apostle Peter, who grew up in, in the Jewish faith, memorized the Old Testament scriptures, certainly would have known the story of Noah forwards and backwards, but then got to meet Jesus and spend three years with Jesus, and travel with Jesus, and listen to him teach, and most importantly, watch him be crucified on a cross, and visited with him when he was raised from the dead. The apostle Peter recounts in two of his letters to the church the way that God fulfilled the promises of Noah through Jesus. Hear what Paul, uh, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 and following. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And then he goes on, he says, baptism, immersion, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as the removal from dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And when Peter, who grew up in the, in the Jewish faith, he's reading these stories and he's thinking about Noah and he's re, re, reminiscing on the life that Jesus lived and the teachings of Jesus and the work of Jesus, he says, just like Noah and his family were brought through the water and saved through the water, so when Christians put their faith in Jesus and they unite their life with him in baptism, something that we don't fully understand, the church has spent thousands of years arguing over, like, why baptism? I don't know. Why go for what? Because God knows what we don't know. God says that when we put our faith and our trust in Jesus, when we unite our life with him, he will save us. It's not some outward cleansing that washes away, um, washes away the dirt from our body, but it's an inward cleansing, an appeal of God for a new conscience, a new life. The Bible would say that when we are raising Christ, we're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come, that God washes away our sins, our regrets, our shames, and he raises us to life in Jesus. And then I love in his next letter, 2 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to close with this, verse 1. Peter writes this. He says, this is now the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved. And I love that because we read right through passages like that, but that's Peter's way of saying, do you not remember the first time I told you? Like, now I'm sitting down to write another letter. They're probably going to preserve this for thousands of years as the word of God, but here it goes nonetheless. This is the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, he says, remember the things that God told you, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from beginning of creation. And what, he, what Peter is saying to the church, what he's saying to you and I, is that just like when Noah was building the ark, there were people that were ridiculing him for 120 years. Is God really going to send a flood? Where's the rain? Why are you building the ark? What are you doing? You really think the animals are going to gather together and, and dwell on this ark? So they're going to say about God's slow, seemingly slow coming, in the second coming of Jesus. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, verse 5, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And hear what he says to the church. He says that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. He's talking about the flood. By the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years and a thousand years are as a day, that God does not operate on our time frame. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient with you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And when the apostle Peter thinks about who Jesus was and what Jesus accomplished for us and how the church can live in the grace of Jesus and have God's righteousness bestowed on us through our trust in Jesus, he starts thinking back to Noah. And he says a couple different times, he says, just as Noah was saved on the ark through the waters, even if it didn't make sense to Noah, we are saved when we unite our life with Christ in baptism. When we put our trust in him, we say we're gonna die to our own way and we're gonna be raised to walk with Jesus. Just like Noah, we are saved. And then he's going to say, after you put your faith in Jesus, I'm going to write another letter to encourage you. And I'm going to again bring up the story of Noah because you put your faith in Jesus at one point, but maybe you're 60 years into this 120-year project that God has put before you. You're 60 years into this walking with Jesus, and it feels like, is God ever going to come? 
you're suffering with pain and broken relationships and physical ailments that are just plaguing your body, you're plaguing your loved ones, and you're dealing with loss, and you're walking, and it just seems like, is God really going to follow through on his promise? Noah would say, is it really going to start to rain? Is this ark really going to be useful? Is God really going to see? Did I misunderstand? Did I misinterpret? Did I grow up reading these stories, and maybe they're not as true? Maybe... And Peter would say, just as it was in the days of Noah, when people were asking questions, they were wondering, where is God? Surely God is not slow in keeping his promise, but he's being patient with us because he doesn't want us to perish. He's extending an invitation after invitation after invitation to come into the ark. But instead of a a boat made with wood, it is a son, his son, nailed to wood, who is lifted up not just to roll back our sins, but to forgive our sins. And as we continue to read these stories, my prayer is going to be that we continue to stand in awe of God, that we realize that these stories we grew up with, these stories we grew up reading about, things like the Jesus storybook Bible, they have satisfied, they, they, they bring to light salvation, how that God satisfied through the work of Jesus, his work, or sorry, our sin debt. I'm going to finish with the Jesus Storybook Bible. I was reading this to Brighton a few nights ago, and this really stood out. It says, the first thing God did after the flood was make another promise to Noah. We call that a covenant, and I won't ever destroy the world again. And like a warrior who puts away his bow and arrow at the end of a great battle, God says, see, I have hung my bow in the clouds. And there in the clouds, just as the storm meets the sun, was a beautiful bow made of light. It was a new beginning in God's world. It wasn't long before everything went wrong again, but God wasn't surprised. He knew this would happen. That's why before the beginning of time, he had another plan, a better plan, a plan not to destroy the world, but to rescue it, a plan to one day send his own son, the rescuer. God's strong anger and hate against sadness and death and sin would come down once more, but not on his people or on his world. No, God's war bow, the rainbow, was now pointing, not pointing down on his people, it was pointing up into the heart of heaven. Sure enough, the Hebrew word for bow in Genesis chapter 9 is the word for war bow. That when God hangs the rainbow in the cloud, it is a picture of his wrath being pointed not down on us, but up at heaven because the work God accomplished for us on the cross. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your goodness and grace. And what a privilege it is to gather together as your people to sing songs of praise to sit under your word, to recap these stories that we've heard growing up. But Father, I pray that as we think through these stories, that your Holy Spirit would stir within us a conviction to know that this is real and that what you accomplished in the Old Testament pointed to Jesus and that what you accomplished for Jesus counted for us. That like Noah, we are corrupt like the rest of the world, but we find grace when we heed your warning, that you bestow your righteousness upon us, that you give us right standing with God when we put our trust in you. Father, as we stand in on you, I pray for our church family, our church family that is here and our church family that is away this week, Lord, that we would not grow weary in doing good, that you gave Moses, I'm sorry, you gave Noah a long project, a long project that would ultimately see his salvation. But Father, may we not grow weary in doing good halfway through. They may restore to us the joy of our salvation as we think about what you've accomplished for us on the cross of Jesus Christ. That you might stir us on, that we might love you more today than we loved you yesterday, that we might stand in awe of you, and that, Father, we might want what you want. That we might set aside our desires that are selfish and lead us to sin. Instead, surrender our life to Jesus, whether that's for the very first time today 
or once again as we continue to walk with you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.